This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. You know, I've, I feel like God's been showing me lately how foolishly I deplete myself and starve myself of the goodness of God. And perhaps since the Garden of Eden, the root of all sin has really come from the evil one making us believe that God is not really for us, he's not really on our side, that he's holding back from us, and that there's a better deal to be had out there. And really, I think this is my hypothesis. You can challenge it if you, if you like, but I think that all sin begins from doubting or forgetting that God loves us, that he's good, that he is His heart is full of kindness towards us and that the only satisfaction for our souls will be found in him. Doubting or forgetting, and perhaps forgetting is the easier one to do, the easier one, the easier way for Satan to tempt us. And so we need to be continually reminding ourselves and reminding one another that God is good. All the time, God is good. And I want to speak to you briefly this afternoon from a few verses in Psalm 103. If you've been a Christian for very long, you are probably familiar with that passage. I just want to share with you the first five verses, and we'll meditate on the goodness of God. So let's read the Word of God together, Psalm 103. This is the New International Version. Listen to the Word of God. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. And the psalm, of course, goes on with many wonderful verses, but we'll um, limit ourselves just to these five today because there's actually quite a bit in there. So here is the psalmist, whoever wrote the psalm, sitting himself down for a little chat. The song is a bit unusual because it's not directly addressed to God. The psalmist is speaking to himself. His audience for this chapter is his own soul. Praise the Lord, my soul. He's talking to himself. And for the Hebrews, the soul didn't mean, you know, the disembodied spiritual part of himself. It meant the very core of his being, the center of his person. And listen up, soul. He says, I know you've got your troubles and your complaints. You're always talking. You always have something to say, but I want to talk to you now. Life's been hard. I know things have been difficult. But now, soul, it's time to rise above those things and worship God. You belong to God. He's been good to you. He's been very good to you. And it's right and proper to respond in worship to him. And so the psalmist goes on to urge himself to tell his soul, don't forget all his benefits, all the good things that God has done for you. And he's not talking about, you know, nostalgically sitting back and letting yourself be flooded by happy memories. He's talking about disciplining himself 
to interpret his present circumstances in light of the past faithfulness of God. It's a discipline, I say, because we're all very absent-minded when it comes to the goodness of God. We have the memory of goldfish, really. We continually doubt and question whether God really loves us when if only we went back in time and reviewed our files, we'd see how again and again God has shown himself faithful. And I know some of you journal, and it's great to write down your thoughts and prayers, but it's even better to open those journals back up again and flip through them and see how in the past weeks and months and years, how God has answered prayers and how he's appeared to you in very surprising ways at times to show you and demonstrate that he truly is a good God. This is about deliberately bringing God's past goodness to mind, to strengthen our faith, to awaken thanksgiving, and to stir our hope. St. Augustine spoke of our memories as the stomach of the mind. It's, it's kind of a funny image, actually, but if you think of a cow with its seven stomachs, it chews up the grass and swallows it, and then it lies down on the ground and, and brings that stuff up and begins to digest and ruminate, literally the word is ruminate, to chew over um, what it's ingested. And we're called to do the same thing with our memory, to take our experiences and to really chew them over and to digest them properly and to extract all the good from them. And if you read your Bible, especially your Old Testament, you see how again and again, there's the people of God are called to remember, to remember what God has done for them. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses warns the children of Israel of the disaster that would over, overtake them if they failed to remember the goodness of God, and if they went and wandered after other gods instead. And that's the reason in the Old Testament, God gives his people all these rituals and festivals and monuments and altars and pillars to continually remind them of God's saving acts. Dennis Kinlaw observes that the Hebrew was called to walk backward into the future, to walk backward into the future. What a great image. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. And that's what we're called to do as those who believe in Jesus to walk backward into the future, looking behind us in a healthy way, not at our sin and the things we're supposed to leave behind, but to look backward at what God has done for us. I have a book on my shelf. I haven't started reading it yet, but the title is intriguing. It's called Preaching as Reminding, Stirring Memory in an Age of Forgetfulness. And you realize when you start preaching that you really have nothing new to offer the people of God week in and week out. You're called not to preach anything new, but to preach the same old truths again and again to remind the people of God of what's always been true. And really, all Christians are called to be preachers, to have an audience of one, our own soul, to preach, to remind, to call to memory what God has done for us, to take ourselves by the collar, to get on our own face, and to speak the goodness of God. And here in these first five verses of Psalm 103, the psalmist just lists for us five massive blessings, five great benefits of God that he must not forget, that he must keep in front of his face always. And he invites us to do the same. 
The first benefit in verse, verse 3 is that God is a God who forgives all your iniquity. Here is where our experience of the blessing of the goodness of God begins. That God is a God who forgives our sins. It's not about forgiveness in the abstract. If you read that verse carefully, it's not about forgiveness. It's about the God who forgives. Because forgiveness is deeply relational. And really, God's forgiveness comes first because until our broken relationship with him is restored, there can be no true blessing. God forgives all of our sins. And it's not just sin that he forgives. A more precise translation would be iniquity, which has the sense of perverse evil. Iniquity is the word that God uses in the, in the Old Testament to describe the sacred prostitution and child sacrifice of the Canaanites. And it's the word that's used in the prophets as God denounces the gross injustice and idolatry for which terrifying judgment is coming. Iniquity. Think of your, of your worst moment of sin and shame. God sees and knows. But instead of unleashing fire from heaven, God freely chooses to forgive your, your sin, to wash you clean from your iniquity, and to restore you to relationship, to his favor. Now, if it was David who wrote this psalm, and we're not sure whether or not it was, but if it was David, then he had iniquities, real iniquities of his own that God had mercifully forgotten, not least, of course, his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And David could rejoice that not just a few of his sins or the majority of his iniquity was forgiven, but all of it had been dealt with by God. He forgives all your sins without exception. And forgiveness, if forgiveness is real biblical forgiveness, it means that God deals with our sin with such finality that it can never rise up to haunt us again. In Micah 7, the prophet celebrates God. Who is a God like you who, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. And you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. God forgives he forgets. He's never going to bring those things back to remind us. He's not keeping us on probation to see if we behave properly before he releases us from our past debts. He completely forgives us. But often we live, don't we, like people who've forgotten they've been forgiven by God. We feel kind of bad about ourselves. We have this vague, vaguely oppressive sense of guilt that keeps us from God's presence. And there's little freedom in our worship and our prayers. We don't believe God is really happy to see us. But he wants to remind you, and you need to remind yourself, as I need to remind myself, that if you belong to Jesus, you are completely forgiven. You don't have to atone for yourself. You don't have to punish yourself. It's a free gift of God.
And Martin Luther said, we're not to waste time thinking how unworthy we are of the blessings of God. We are to know that it pleased God to freely give us his unspeakable gifts. And if he offers his gifts free of charge, why not take them? Why worry about our lack of worthiness? Why not accept gifts with joy and thanksgiving? Why not take them? If God is offering you forgiveness, why are you not taking it? Why are you withholding yourself from the grace and the mercy of God? He's offering it to you freely. That's the first blessing, that God is a God who forgives all of our sins. But the psalmist is also determined not to forget the God who heals all of our diseases. He heals all of our diseases. And if, for those of us who are from Western cultures, our minds are so blinded to anything but material causes for disease, we might find it odd that healing is so closely linked to forgiveness. But that's not how the Hebrew mind operated. For, for the Jews, the body and the spirit are so closely linked together, as David says in Psalm 32, that when he kept silent about his sin, his bones wasted away and his strength was dried up like the heat of summer. Forgiveness and healing belong closely together. And I think the key to this verse is the unusual word that's used for diseases, which occurs only four other times in the Old Testament. And in each case, the diseases spoken about are sicknesses spent, sent specifically as punishment for sin. In Deuteronomy 29, for example, it's used prophetically of Israel's future exile, when the whole land becomes diseased, burned out with brimstone and salt, a place so barren no plant is able to grow, all as judgment for Israel abandoning the God who brought them out of Egypt. That's the kind of disease we're talking about. And so the psalmist here is reminding himself, urging himself to remember that his God is not only a God who forgives, he also restores to full health and life and flourishing. And as his body recovers from sickness and as the Israelites start seeing the land turning green again, they're reminded that when God forgives, he begins to make everything bad come untrue. The third blessing the psalmist records is that the Lord redeemed him from the pit. And in those times, people would carve out Deep, uh, deep and narrow cisterns in the rock to find water and to store water. And these pits would have been incredibly dangerous. And you can imagine the terror of walking by yourself in a remote, er a remote area and you walk into some tall grass and you slip and you fall into a hidden pit. And you're down there, you're wedged between the rock, you're sinking in slime and muck up to your neck and you scream and scream for help, but you're too far away. No one hears you. And the hours slowly tick by and your voice grows weaker. You stop shouting for help and your body begins to shiver uncontrollably as hypothermia sets in. Hours and hours go by. You're drifting in and out of consciousness. And then you think you hear a voice calling your name. You think you're hallucinating, but then strong arms knot a rope around your waist. Strong arms drag you out of the slime, 
up out of the cistern into the sunlight. And as you collapse on the ground, you try to thank your rescuer, but you break down and begin sobbing like a baby out of sheer relief not to be trapped in the pit. And this is the picture that the psalmist is using to speak of God's rescue. There I was in the spiritual and psychological depths, completely trapped, immobile, unable to move, unable to extricate myself, caught in a situation that seemed to do was wait to die. And then God showed up and he reached down and he pulled me up into the light of life. God is a God who redeems from the pit. It's an interesting word, redeem. It's one of those rich Bible words, and it comes from Jewish family law, in fact. So in those days, you, you might be only a poor harvest or two away from falling into poverty and starvation. So imagine that this happens to you, and you're forced to sell off your family farm, and then you have to sell your house. And then when you've exhausted every other option, when you've tried to collect, tried to apply for every loan that's available to you and nothing, in the end, you have no choice but to sell yourself and your wife and your children into slavery. Well, if that happened to you, it was the responsibility of the senior member of the family to rescue you from your predicament. Even if it was your own fault, even if it was your own poor financial choices and bad management, it was the responsibility of the senior member of the family to deal with your situation. So your mom would write an urgent letter to her older brother and rich Uncle George, shall we say, would come down from the city, come down from his office, and he would write some big checks. He would make some big payments. First, he would buy your family's freedom out of slavery, and then he'd go down to the bank and get your house out of foreclosure. And then finally, he would drive you down to the pawn shop and ask you to point out all of your tools and all of your furniture and all of your jewelry so that he could redeem those two. Acting as redeemer would have been an expensive honor for Uncle George, but it's an honor he could not shirk without bringing shame on himself as a selfish, unfaithful person. That was simply his obligation as the senior member of the family, and you had the right to call on him to discharge that obligation when you found yourself in trouble. So, this is what it means for God to describe himself as redeemer. He's taken on himself the role of the senior family member who has an obligation. God has an obligation to rescue any of his relatives who get themselves into trouble. Even if it's their own fault, their own stupidity, their own bad habits, God has put himself under obligation. And therefore, if God fails to show up, if he decides it's too expensive, he doesn't want to write the big check, then God would be bringing shame on his own name and he would no longer deserve to be worshipped as righteous. And because God is exceedingly jealous for his name and will always act with righteousness and faithfulness and justice and steadfast love, he will always show up to redeem his people when they cry out to him. He's put himself under obligation. Of course, in the beginning, God had a free choice. He could have chosen not to enter into covenant with Abraham and his descendants. 
But once he had, once God had entered into covenant, he's now under obligation to rescue and redeem whatever the cost is to himself. So if you fell into a pit, like the psalmist had, of any kind, even through your own foolishness and sin, you had the right to cry out for redemption to your covenant God. And here in Psalm 103, the psalmist is rejoicing that, that God heard his cry from the pit. He did not ignore it as no concern of his. God heard and he recognized and he responded to the voice of a family member in trouble. God redeems from the pit. You'll notice that the first three blessings have all been negative ones, haven't they? Forgiveness from iniquity, healing from diseases, rescue from the pit. God's dealing with deep, devastating problems in our lives. But the blessings that the psalmist recites go even above these. God isn't just bringing us back to square one and stepping back so that we can handle things on our own. He's not just turning back the clock and bringing us back to a pre-iniquity, pre-disease, and pre-pit state, gracious and undeserved as that would be. God does even more for that. Because the fourth blessing the psalmist talks about is that God crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Crowning, of course, is an image of royalty. And how far the psalmist has come from being trapped in the pit. He wasn't thinking about crowns then. He wasn't thinking about thrones and coronation ceremonies and royal robes. All he wanted at that time was to be not in a pit anymore. But to his great surprise and amazement, after being rescued from his dire situation, God doesn't just disappear and leave him to clean himself off. God advances him into royal dignity. And the crown he wears bears the most valuable jewels of the kingdom of God, steadfast love and mercy. And God's steadfast love is his unswerving determination to bless his people. Come thick or come thin, God is determined to bless. God's steadfast love is his undying loyalty and commitment to never wash his hands of us, never to turn away, never to turn his back on us. However difficult, however frustrating, however disobedient we might be, it's the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And the word for mercy here is a very tender word that is often translated pity or compassion, like it is if you would read on Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And in Hebrew, it's the same word for a woman's womb, the place where the helpless baby is gently cradled, protected, and nourished by its mother. That's the mercy of God on all of us. And so the psalmist rejoices that God, fifthly, here's the fifth thing to remember, is that God is the one who satisfies him with good so that his youth is renewed like the eagles. God hasn't just given him the bare necessities for survival, but he's been showered with plenty. He's been filled with abundance. This is the language of feasting, 
not mere subsistence, feasting. God's grace is not one of those 50 Tetri packs of ramen noodles that students have to eat. It's, it's king crab and prime rib. It's a small mountain of mashed potatoes with rivers of butter, with goblets of wine, red and white, and something chocolatey and on fire for dessert. It's this image of the supra that's so lavish that plates of food are stacked on top of one another so that we can feast and feast and feast at the table of God. God has created all of us, every human being, with deep and intense longing. And we all are born with this inconsolable longing for happiness and satisfaction. And God has made us to find that deep joy in himself. And our destiny is to have all the goodness of God pass before us and to discover that our name is written on all of it. God holds no part of his goodness back from us. And of course, when Jesus returns and we're given resurrection bodies and we enter the new Jerusalem, we're going to experience the goodness of God in its fullness. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that here and now in this life of difficulty and pain, we might taste and see that the Lord is good. And the result of all this goodness of God is that our youth is renewed like the eagles, that we receive fresh life and strength to go on so that our hearts are filled with new vigor, even in old age, and we soar effortlessly along on the wind of God's goodness, exclaiming again and again, bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, it's remarkable that these Old Testament saints and the Psalms especially had such a deep understanding of the goodness of God. But we stand on an even higher vantage point than the greatest men and women of God in the Old Testament because we stand on this side of the cross and the resurrection. We realize how these fivefold riches numbered in the Psalm have been made possible and secured and won for us through the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We can map Jesus onto all five of these blessings. First of all, Jesus is the sin bearer, the one who was crushed for our iniquity so that we can stand completely forgiven by God. And secondly, Jesus is the great physician the one who took on all of our diseases so that by his stripes we could be healed. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer who lowered himself into the pit of death so that we could go free. Jesus is the man of sorrows who was crowned with thorns so that we could be crowned with everlasting joy. And finally, Jesus is the obedient servant who emptied himself completely on the cross so that we can be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm not telling you anything new this afternoon. This is preaching as reminding. These are all things we know if we've believed on Jesus, but things that we so quickly forget. And I want to remind you today and 
I want you to remind yourself that if you belong to Jesus, all these blessings belong to you. And how foolish it would be if we would go through life depleted, starving, and exhausted, when in our very pockets are all the riches of God. It's all there. It's all available to us. And our task with the help of the Holy Spirit is to feed again and again on the goodness of God that's already been given to us in Jesus. Really, we don't need anything new. We don't need a fresh revelation from God. We don't need a new experience of grace. God has already given us everything in Jesus. And we need to open up our inheritance and begin to feast and enjoy what God has already given to us. And all of this is a free gift. The Spirit invites anyone today who longs to know the goodness of God to come and drink of the water of life freely and without price. However shameful your sin, however vile your disease, however deep your pit, it gives God joy to pour out his goodness on all who entrust themselves to Jesus. So, let each person here speak to his or her own soul this afternoon and say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's bow our heads and pray, shall we? Father God, we come to you as the source of all good. There is nothing missing from you. It's all there for us to enjoy. Forgive us, God, for so foolishly wandering away from you, for doubting and for forgetting. And though we ask for forgiveness, we discover that we're already forgiven through Jesus, that you're not standing there with your arms crossed, ready to rip into us and strongly rebuke us for our sin. But the door is open. You are the waiting father who embraces those who return. You put the ring on our fingers. You put a robe around our shoulders and you invite us to sit down and feast with you. Lord, help us to open our hearts to receive all that you have for us in Jesus to return to your word, to return to you in prayer with the expectation that you are going to satisfy our deepest longings. Lord, you know how we forget and you know how we wander and we pray that you would give each person here your Holy Spirit afresh to show us the things of Jesus and to help us find all of our good in him in whose name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.